Hi, everyone, and welcome to Viva La Flora Live podcast, where we bring you the art and business of flowers. Stay tuned. Hey guys, and welcome to Viva La Flora Live podcast, and we are on episode number 15. Today's guest is rather unusual. His name is Alistair McDonald. He's not a florist, not a grower, not a wholesaler, has nothing to do with flowers, probably doesn't really know much about flowers, nor how to arrange them, but knows everything that has to do with business, running a business, being an entrepreneur, finances, and so on. Alistair McDonald is a private advisor to established entrepreneurs, investors, and business owners, TEDx speaker, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt competitor. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. Okay, there you go. He's done a number of fascinating things in his life. And he is truly one of the most remarkable people you'll ever meet and have a conversation with. I've had a privilege of knowing Alistair for a few years now, and through the dental mastermind that, um, you know, my husband and I are part of, and he also is my husband's, um, you know, one of my husband's coaches, and like I said, truly a remarkable and very intelligent man to have a conversation with. So he was gracious enough to be willing to come to this interview and shed some light on today's economics, financial markets, and so on. And believe me when I say this, if there are any other episodes that I would say, you know what, you can skip over. No, don't skip over anything. There is no such thing. I will never say that. All my guests are precious to me. But if somebody asked me, hey, I have time to listen to one episode, I would say listen to this one, especially right now where we are in the market of 2020, considering everything else that is going on, I would say this is definitely a must listen. Without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. I'm presenting you Alistair McDonald. Hello. We're here. Good to be yes. here. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure. And thank you. Thank you. I can. I really cannot thank you enough. You know, honestly, you're the highest profile guest I've had up to today, you know, and probably will be for a while. So I'm like, <laughs> yay. I, I've known you for quite a while, right? I mean, yes. so this feels like just having a conversation with a friend for me. But I was literally reading your bio earlier today. And I know everything that is on your bio about you from just knowing you and listening to your podcast and, you know, meeting you at Masterminds and so on, right? But I kind of had to sit back for a minute and be like, well, you know, this is just like so impressive. I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> it was never created that way. It was accidental, if anything. Well, uh, I mean, no, you've done all of those things there. There was, there was, and in fact, uh, that bio is like the super concise and short version of things. It's not even the full Alistair story. So I feel like I know you really well at the same time. I feel like you're sort of this uh, mystery man, you know, all at the same time, uh, honestly. So. <laughs> well, I have no idea what bio you have in front of you, but we're both going to hear it for the first time. I suspect <laughs> that uh, my assistant shot it over to you, and I don't know what. It's written, every time it's different. It's always true, but I never right. know what is going to come out. So we'll hear it together. <laughs> I know, right? When when it all comes out. But um, thank you again, Alistair. So, um, so a lot of my listeners, um, actually, pretty much all of my listeners, don't really know you. 
because you're not a florist, right? You're not a um, wedding professional. You basically have nothing to do with, with my industry whatsoever. Right. So, um, you know, the reason why I have you here and I am so appreciative that you're here is because I started understanding economics, honestly, and how sort of this whole economic forecasting and all of these things work, um, really because of you, actually, and got interested in it for that matter. I mean, I knew it was this thing that sort of that was happening in kind of parallel to my life. I know it affects on my life, but I didn't fully understand really how. And of course, with the help of my husband as well, who's completely all into it, right? Yeah. Um, but hearing you talk during the masterminds, what opened my eyes up and actually made me be interested in it, you know? So, um, but before we go even into that, you know, your journey of how you got here is far more interesting, honestly. So if you can tell us a little bit about you and then we'll just launch in. Great. So I'm originally from Zimbabwe in Africa. I, when I was born, it was the country of Rhodesia. And Rhodesia was going through a violent transition from white minority to black majority rule uh, that lasted the duration of really the, the fast bulk of my childhood from day zero to, until I was about uh, uh, 10 years old. Uh, we grew up in a, a, a very bad civil war. Um, my, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs, my, my mother and father, my grandfather, as far back as I can see in my family, everybody has worked for themselves. Uh, of course, in a third world economy during a civil war, mm-hmm. uh, things are asked of you that are not asked in a standard developed world economy, socially, uh, familiarly, politically, economically, and so forth. And so that was the kind of soundtrack of my life was, you know, sleeping with guns under the bed or lying down in the back of the station wagon where we drove past areas of the farm that we ran the risk of uh, ambush and so forth. And it was all that I knew. And so I don't ever recall being particularly afraid or anything like that. Um, and everybody has their own version of this. But so I I grew up into an emerging uh, mixed race environment. Mine was the first generation to go to mixed race schools, uh, which was my privilege. It was a privilege afforded me and not previous generations because of ignorance. Uh, and so that that was just that's kind of where my incredible luck began, uh, and to this day I'm the luckiest person you'll ever meet. I mean, it's just I'm so it doesn't matter what I do, it it works out beautifully for me, and so I have so much gratitude for just anything that is thrown my way, and so many wonderful opportunities have been. And so I grew up. I started my first business when I was 18, which was a safari business. And as luck would have it, my timing was perfect. And I enjoyed immediate, rapid, significant success. Mm. Where I was, uh, by the time I was 21 years of age, I had more employees than years of my life. I was living in a five-bedroom home with a swimming pool and tennis courts. And I was like Pablo Escobar, you know. Um, <laughs> And but but the tragedy of this the the farcical aspect was that I thought I had achieved all of this. I thought I was amazing, but it was really just fortuitous timing. Uh, and so I came to the United States. I got involved in the investment business and uh, worked on Wall Street, and that was a horrendous experience. Uh, just a bunch of crooks and thieves. In my experience, I'm sure they're not all bad, but 
those ones were bad. And uh, that rolled over into me actually getting directly involved in the investment business. And I uh, built and ran a uh, uh, an investment fund, essentially, that I was able to, thankfully, given the experience of economic and social, which is something we've got lots to talk about, how it parlays into design and social appetites for what movies people want and when and so forth, um, was uh, I was able to anticipate the housing U.S. housing bubble crisis and profit from that and the financial crisis and my clients and I, it was the most profitable time of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I continued on in that business. I sold and left that business in 2015. And my work ever since has been solely with what I think of as, I would say, high-performing entrepreneurs, but mostly they're just cool people that are doing cool things. Um, I own a veterinary hospital, a five-doctor veterinary hospital, and I'm a partner in a dental clinic. Um, and I'm a dad. I'm a dad of the gambler and the bullet, Abigail, who's 18, <laughs> and Angus, who turns 16 in 10 days' time. Uh, and a, a husband of, I think, 3,000 years. My bride and I met on the Zambezi River on March 25th, 1995, a long time ago. Well, thank you. That was amazing. And I met your wife for like a hot second. It was That's one right. of the masterminds. Yeah, I don't, I don't know which one it was, but yeah, we, none of us really had time to, to actually officially hang out. But um, I would honestly say that she is probably one of the coolest people that I know remotely. <laughs> Just she knowing about her, <laughs> like yeah. the stories that I, I mean, it's like, you know, you know, hats off to her. My God. But well, yeah. She's got a high pain tolerance, clearly. 25 years of dealing with me. That's, uh, that says a lot right there. <laughs> I'm still developing errands. It's just, I don't know where this is going to go. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, he and I are both stuck with very cheeky, awesome women in our lives. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. Um, so let's talk about the... The economy, right? Um, not about like really where it is right now, but if I approached you and said, hey, um, you know, I hear this word thrown around and I mean, I think I understand it, but I really don't, you know, like, can you, um, can you explain economy for dummies, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I am an I, I am a dummy when it comes to that. I, I really am. I, you know, just when I think I know, I understand I learn new stuff and I'm like, okay, I'm just never going to learn this. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is much like um, anywhere where we have a need, which in this case is we need to satisfy our own personal economic aspirations and desires and needs, uh, coupled with ignorance, where we, we say, for example, uh, you have a car and your car, you don't quite know what that rattle is, but you know it needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And so you've got a need meeting ignorance. And this is tricky because when this happens, what emerges in the space between is a risk of being duped or taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my case, my dad is a trained mechanic who built uh, multiple businesses and remarkably successful, but his original training was as a mechanic, uh, despite being, you know, uh, got a scholarship, a road scholarship and so forth that he never acted on because of his generational blah, 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 but right. a physics and math prodigy that, that uh, in a mechanic. So I grew up with massively ignorant with basic mechanics. And my dad said, I don't want you to do this. So I'm not going to get you involved in this business. You've got to go out and mm-hmm. do your own thing. And so that put me at a susceptibility, very high susceptibility for making mistakes or being taken advantage of. And we see this inside economics and finance and insurance, things that are actually very simple, but they are made complicated 
in the service of supporting excessive fees and profits to those that trade in that gap, in that gap between our ignorance and our need. Um, So I think probably the easiest thing, the easiest way for us to consider what economics is, Mm -hmm. is essentially a transfer of value. That's all it is. You and I in this conversation are going to transfer value. I always enjoy the time that I get to spend with you, and hopefully I can give you something in return that will be of benefit to you. So this is really an economic transaction. The only reason we don't consider it that is because no money is trading hands. But even that is a misnomer because, again, if we look at value creation, Mm -hmm. money has a value and services and products and solutions have a value. And so we are trading that. We are giving people things that solve their problems or improve their experience. And that's what design is. Design is finding a way, in my opinion, completely unqualified. Uh, We're finding a way that you can scratch an itch that I have for art in my life. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. I want art in my life. But all of my taste is in my mouth. I have no idea how to create what you can create, but I'm amazed by it. Mm. And I want a piece of that in my life, in my home, in my celebration of life, whether it's a funeral or a wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want and I want to give you value, these green uh, notes of paper, which you can then transfer for value with others. So that's what an economy is. So that's what economics is. And the economy is just everybody doing that, really, at its core level. So when we start to look at the the fluctuations of the economy, the vicissitudes of of day-to-day cycles in the stock market, or roses are costing this out of Rotterdam right now, but last week they were priced at that, Mm -hmm. those types of fluctuations, um, those are remarkably simple to explain as well. It is our appetites. I'll give you an example. Let's jump to finance for a moment. Mm -hmm. We hear from the news, you'll be driving down the road, and you'll hear stocks are up today, making investors optimistic. We hear that. Or stocks are down, making investors worried, fearful, or pessimistic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we think nothing of it. And we drive on and we think, oh, makes sense. Stocks fall. Hey, I'd be afraid too because my net worth has fallen. Or real estate values have fallen, Mm -hmm. making homeowners nervous. Mm -hmm. But if we actually stop for a moment and ask ourselves, is that true? Then we have this remarkable insight, which is if that's true, what made stocks or home prices or what have you fall in the first place? Mm -hmm. Just do it on their own. The causality is reversed. Fearful people sell stocks, Mm -hmm. which causes them to fall. Optimistic people buy homes, which causes them to rise. And so we are always acting in a way that reflects an emotional desire, an emotional belief. Now, we don't want to admit this because it doesn't sound sophisticated for me to say, I'm just afraid and I'm going to sell my Facebook stock. Because people say, well, that's stupid. You know, you've got to use logic. So what do we do? We do what psychologists tell us we'll do, which is called framing. Mm. I will get afraid because my Facebook stock has done really well and I'm afraid that it's going to fall. I'm just making this up. And I'll say, I, if I called an advisor and said, I want to sell, they'll say, well, you know, what's your reasoning? And you will come up with some ridiculous logical construct to frame what is really an emotional decision. The beauty of art 
is art allows us to be honest. Mm. We can be honest. We can say, I like those colors because they make me feel good. And nobody is going to scorn you off the stock exchange for that. Nobody's going to boo you out of the conference room. Right. They will say, you know what? Tell me more. And you'll say they're rich. And I feel like they match the energy of the light in this room. Mm-hmm. If you say that to an analyst, they'll say, well, obviously, you've bumped your head. This is ridiculous. <laughs> and, and this is the mistake that we make. Mm-hmm. I think this is art's function is it allows us to go to a place where we can speak to our actual base desires. Mm. That's why we create what we create. There are people that take, for example, Tibetan art. Tibetan art uh, and Buddhist paintings from Tibet have no creator. They're unsigned. Mm. That's amazing to me. Yeah, a piece of art that will take them years to put together, and the painting will hang and it will have no owner. That is art for art's sake. But what we do is we we want to leave a mark. And, of course, I have no judgment either way. We want to leave a mark. In the United States, we're fascinated with legacy, mm-hmm. which is really probably the most arrogant thing on earth. How will, yes. Really, how will I be remembered, you know? If we're forgetting that about 99.9% of the planet never is remembered, uh, we don't even remember who our great-great-grandfathers were. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry, I'm going off off track. No, 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 you're you're, you're good. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way about legacy. Just, yeah, Yeah. and it's being thrown around all the time, and it's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and the question, how do you want to be remembered? My answer is always to whom or by whom, Mm. you know, by whom? And they say, well, you know, your followers. I I don't want followers. I just want friends. I don't want followers any more than I want to be a follower, you know, mm-hmm. but my children or my clients or, yeah, I want to be remembered as somebody who made a big difference for them. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So coming back to finance, here's the other piece. The first is we are largely acting on primal instincts, but we hate confessing that. So we make it sound complicated. Uh, the rush to buy toilet paper with the COVID is a perfect example of oh fear-based, fear-based decision making. Yes. yes. Where does this happen? This happens in the marketplace, Mm -hmm. and the marketplace is an auction system. Now, in the design world, you know auction systems. You know, I've been to the the flower trading uh, centers in Rotterdam where, you know, where flowers are coming in from being flown all over the world. I have good friends of mine back in Zimbabwe that have uh, significant rose and tulip production that Mm -hmm. they fly uh, to uh, to Rotterdam for you know and Amsterdam for the two trades uh, trading exchanges mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you go to a livestock auction, and as I did growing up with my dad and my grandfather watching cattle ship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, some days more cattle, more sellers of cattle showed up than buyers. Mm-hmm. What happens? More sellers than buyers. Sellers compete downward on price, so prices fall. When the more buyers show up for those pigs or those cattle than sellers, buyers bid against each other for a head of cattle for mm. uh, 12 roses. It's the same thing. So more buyers than sellers drives prices higher. More sellers than buyers drives prices lower. Mm. And this is the magic mechanism of the marketplace. Let's imagine that you and I and our mutual friend, Aaron, <laughs> you and I, we both had a bunch of tulips, Mm -hmm. 12 each. And he is standing in the marketplace 
and I've got mine, and I said, these are legit. These are absolutely beautiful, but they were identical in color and age and so forth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I said, here it is, and it's nine bucks for the dozen. Mm -hmm. And you look at me and you say, I know that I have, a, in this case, I have a shelf life of maybe four days before I can, it's over for me with these tulips. And you have to ask yourself an immediate question. Would I take $8 today over a possible $9 tomorrow? Mm. Say, yes, I will. I would rather a bird in the hand. I would rather a bird in the hand than one and than two in the bush. So you yeah, say, yeah. you know what? Take mine for eight. And now I have to run the assessment. Will I take seven now or possibly eight tomorrow? Because right. the whole pricing structure has moved down. Yeah. And what does Aaron do? He stands there and he watches two sellers bid against each other. Mm -hmm. This drives prices down. The same is true if you, if Aaron and I are buying from you and you say, I've got the same dozen tulips and they're $9. And I look at him and I say, I'm in a lot of trouble with my bride and I need those tulips. And I look at him and I say, he's got pretty deep pockets. I'm going to give you, I, I'll give you 10. And he says, hang on a second. I'm in trouble with my bride. I'll give you 11. Bup, 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 bup. More buyers than sellers mm -hmm. against mm -hmm. each other and the price. This is how the entire U.S. stock market bond market and housing market works mm. that's it that was beautifully said and so bottom line economy is this bipolar highly emotional being that is never satisfied under any kind of remedy never satisfied <laughs> and that's a beautiful way to describe it and we're constantly moving between uh, and this happens throughout the course of the day Mm. We extrapolate things out into the future all the time. And this is critical because I imagine a good number of your friends and listeners here are business owners. Mm -hmm. and, and this is critical because if you own a business, you are in the forecasting business. If you, It doesn't matter what it is you're doing. If you decide that you're going to buy another freezer uh, or buy another fridge or get some more scissors or get – you are making a purchase. You are using today's money. Mm -hmm. That is making a bet on future demand or lack thereof. And so we make these decisions all the time. We're always making predictions about the future, but nobody tells us this. Mm -hmm. And we discover when we run the business into the ground, mm -hmm. when our expectations don't meet reality. And that's exactly what's going on in the economies around the world right now. Old expectations are meeting a new reality. Mm -hmm. So... This is problematic because I've got one fridge and I've got all of my stock sitting there and I've got a good turnover and a solid client base, but it's full to the brim and I can't fit anything else in. So I say, okay, I'm going to buy another fridge. That is a major forecast that I'm making because a fridge is a damn expensive unit. Mm -hmm. I've got to sell a lot of flowers to justify this purchase. So the question the question, and anyone out there that's asking themselves that is doing this, we have to ask ourselves, on what data am I making this prediction? And is this data old, representing last year's demand, mm -hmm. or new, representing today's? This is where entrepreneurs run onto the rocks. Mm -hmm. Problem is, we are actively making predictions and forecasts about our business, but we've never, not only never been told that that's what we're doing, we have never been trained in how to do it. We've never been trained. So we just do what we did this morning when I spilled coffee on my lap and said, well, there goes the day. 
you know, or I knew that it was going to be, or that person cuts me off. Oh, I knew. We do that. We look for patterns in our ex experience and we just extrapolate them out and we call them a forecast. Mm -hmm. By the way, this is exactly what financial analysts do. It's exactly what economists do. The Federal Reserve, mm -hmm. everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody is bad at this. They haven't done the reading. They haven't honed the skill right. that can make or break you because timing trumps quality of ideas. Right. You can have a bad idea at a good time, good idea. Good idea, bad time, bad idea. Mm -hmm. And we all, you know, anyone who's been in business long enough has, has seen this happen. Um, but yeah, wow. I got off track there. No, no, that was uh, that was really good, actually. And, and it gives you a lot to sort of think about, right? And I mean, like, as you're talking here, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, that thing that I was going to do, do I need to, like, do that? I need to think about this. I need to weigh that in. I need to, like, in my head, I'm already, like, I have a thousand different thoughts that are going through my head thinking, I need to go back and reevaluate this <laughs> from a sort of a different lens, right? Um, I mean, and yeah. There's something about that that's critical right now, which is the bringing our past into today, bringing our past into the mm -hmm. future. We wake up every day mm -hmm. and there is this moment where we go from the dream state to the awake state. And it's a tiny gap. In fact, I'm going to do a whole podcast talking about this, what I call the zero point. But we essentially do this. We wake up and immediately what comes into your mind, oh, I need to call Anahit back. Uh, I've got this on my schedule today. I've got, blah, blah. we jump straight into our to-do list. What is our to-do list? It's a long list of obligations and commitments that we made in the past. Mm. So we are constantly taking our past and putting it in our future and wondering why nothing changes. Why we get in the same fights, why we eat the same food, why we buy the same, we do the same loop at the grocery store. It's this old rote habit, uh, these heuristics that we work with. Right. But the reason that this is dangerous for business owners right now is we are on the back end of the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. 11 years of boom. Right. That has driven up stock prices, home prices, bond prices. I mean, you name it. Everything except food prices, interestingly enough. Right. So everybody that is making a major business decision today cannot help but take the booming demand expectations and factor it into their business forecasts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We can't help it, especially if we have been in business for less than 15 years. Why less than 15? Because that's when the last cycle rolled over. 2008 and 2009. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So we could go back to 20, 2005 when the housing market peaked and that imploded. So we lost money on homes, then stocks, then gold, then commodities. Mm -hmm. and on and on. Right. So this is key because what it points to, it points to for us is that every economic cycle has two pieces. It has the expansionary component and the contractionary one. Mm -hmm. And that is a full market cycle. Now, what problem does this create? A large problem because most of the world of advice, of uh, financial solutions, of business coaches, of gurus are half cycle experts. What they are selling today is stuff that only works in boom times. <clears throat> they are, they are, the world is full of half cycle experts. <laughs> Very few people are truly qualified 
to be able to navigate their clients, their friends, their florists, their entrepreneurs through a full market cycle. Mm -hmm. And you ask most of them. I mean, the world is awash with coaches, consultants, advisors right now. Mm -hmm. You ask them what they were doing from 2007 through 2009. Most of them were employees. Mm. And they were employees and they got laid off or what have you. And then they watched these other business owners start to boom and things looked easy. And they decided, man, everyone's making money in business. I will go into it as well and so forth. It's very hard to find anybody that actually profited during the crisis. Mm -hmm. There's no other advisors that I know that can say, yep, killed it then, super ready for it now. Whole cycle, what I call full cycle entrepreneurs. There's just none of them out there. Right. Huh. Well, it also is really hard to imagine after going for so long that there's an actual downfall that's going to happen because it's kind of, it's almost like, nah, what are you talking about? You know, it's just, it's very like everybody's very skeptical about it. And I can tell you what's going on in in our industry right now. Right. Um, And this is all on social media and everywhere. Everybody's doing lives and webinars and all of these things, which is nice and wonderful. It gives people somewhere to be something to perhaps participate in. Right. I mean, it all kind of makes them feel warm and fuzzy. That's great. But the message that I keep getting um, through, through these uh, platforms are um, that, okay, so, all of these events got canceled and postponed and whatnot. Um, life basically came to a stop, like mm-hmm. as we know it, right? In 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 some aspects, as in as it pertains to floral industry, that is, right? And then what's gonna happen as soon as like they lift the gates up, everybody is gonna look for the next florist and the next event planner and next this and that and the other and it's all gonna like skyrocket and life's gonna be wonderful and rainbows and butterflies and unicorns again yes well there's gonna be push for sure i think you know there's gonna be this up of that almost like a bottleneck that just got open and yes there's gonna be that release but i think the downfall is gonna be even harder for our industry and nobody's talking about it yes and that's my fear in it all, if that makes well, any sense. Yeah, and I think you're really wise and and honestly courageous to speak to this because most of us, as Steinbeck said, most of us would rather be, or excuse me, it was uh, uh, Peel, Norman Vincent Peel, who mm-hmm. said, most of us would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. <laughs> and we, we don't. We don't want to hear anything that's contrary to our deeply embedded expectations. And here is the golden rule of recessions. If there is anything I could share as somebody that's navigated, this is now my fourth economic contraction. What happens is a, a large change is, presents itself. And you have to adjust two things. The first is exactly what you expected to happen, and the second is when you expected it. You have to make these adjustments because they are coming, and they will either you can either reach into the future and bring those adjustments into your present and adjust accordingly, which is what you're doing, and it requires intellectual courage, or you can wait and have those demands thrust upon you, your loved ones, and your business. That's what most people do. And if I can advocate for anything, you know, I speak a lot about the sovereign individual, the person that creates to the extent that they are are capable, creates their future. Mm -hmm. Uh, It requires there are times when you have to change your mind. 
Uh, you have to adjust to the actual seas that you're facing. So specifically to uh, the floral industry and design and art, mm -hmm. one of the most fascinating aspects, well, one of the bedrock expectations we can set is during boom times, we are expansive. We want the second home. We buy the new car. We feel optimistic. We, Oddly enough, we take on more mortgages. Mm -hmm. uh, we have more children. We wear shorter skirts, brighter colors. <laughs> uh, we tend to operate with sex more as a currency in advertising. As we move into a contractionary cycle, which is the, the drawdown in the economy mm -hmm. that we're experiencing right now, and I think, like you, I believe the bulk of it lies ahead, uh, we, everything changes. Skirts get longer. Colors get darker. Design shifts. We move from uh, sex being the selling thing to philosophy, to the avoidance of loss, mm -hmm. to concern about ongoing harm. Uh, and what gets cut off is excess. Discretionary spending is immediately pushed to the side. Another bizarre phenomenon, as more people feel the loss of status, uh, income, financial security, titles, privilege, whatever it is, as they lose these things, which, by the way, 30 million Americans have lost in just the last six weeks. We now have 30 million Americans that are unemployed. That is 30 million less people that will buy our stuff. 30 million less homes that will be bought, 30 million less iPhones that will be bought, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So what do we do when we lose status, income, uh, confidence, uh, title, security? We get afraid. And we go from being afraid to being angry. Mm -hmm. Anger is fear. Anger is always fear. We are afraid of something. We're afraid that it will continue on the way it is. We're afraid that it'll get worse than it already is. We're afraid of losing status, privilege, power, uh, uh, etc., what have you. And this means we look for people to blame. Mm. And it's a coming wave of retribution. And we're already starting to see signs of it. Politically, it's this person did this and we're blaming that person and no one wants to take responsibility We'll see the same in our businesses, uh, in industries, people looking for someone to blame. Mm -hmm. I don't wish this to be true, but I've seen it enough to know that it's an inevitability. I know when I've lost things, I get upset and mad. It's right. a primal instinct. So where do we start to cut back? With excess. And those that display excess, that, you, that were the Instagram influences and people we adored during the boom era, are reviled. We're already seeing this. Oh, yeah. Bill, Gates, Bill Gates, this bull market icon, self-made billionaire, is now being involved in every possible ludicrous conspiracy theory you can imagine. My goodness, yeah. to control the world, and he wants to inject people. And you know who's next? Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk is next. All of these icons of the bull market era. Right. This only happens every market cycle, every time. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Wow. Yeah, I, um, I'm just, you know, their thoughts. Aaron just got home. Hi. Hey. All right. Sorry, listeners. But <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, beauties of having an office at home, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm all for this jump that we're going to have. I just, 
I truly don't think I am equipped to navigate through the downfall that is still yet to come for our industry specifically. And I'm saying, and, and you know, quite frankly, no industry is really different, right? There are differences within them, but they're not so drastically different. But I think because of events being so postponed and pushed and, you know, paused, that it's all going to just immediately explode, there is going to be that big bubble that's going to burst. And then what? <laughs> yes. I don't think I'm ready personally for the then what. I don't think our industry is ready for the then what. It's like, what can we do to be at least emotionally be ready for that, right? Because financially, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's, that's a bigger subject, right? But emotionally, what can we do to be ready for that? When that happens, I have a number of thoughts to okay. share, and I think I have thoughts to share about uh, the professional approach and the personal approach. As so we start with the professional, just to stay on this theme of, of finance and so forth, sure. and our own personal economies, uh, the the psychological shift from expanse and largesse and so forth to economizing and uh, minimalism and reduction and elimination mm -hmm. shows up in art as well. So designs, if you just look at, for example, architecture, the architecture of, say, the 1970s uh, is concrete, it's dark, it's utilitarian, modest amount of light, very cold-looking surfaces, purely utilitarian, built with concrete and cement cheapest possible design. Again, it's about minimis, minimizing expenses, uh, durability. We want things that last. Mm -hmm. We want things that last. Why? Because we are feeling the ache, the heartache of things we thought would last forever. Our opulence, our privilege, our income, our boat, whatever it is. And we see that. We see that lost. This is why art becomes darker in bear markets. Uh, same thing is reflected, as I say, in architecture. We move through expansionary cycles and you look at bull market icons. You look at uh, the Googleplex or Facebook's office. Huge open sharing spaces, no cubicles, tons of light, mm. a lot of plants, a lot of bringing nature, you know, bringing, trying to create life, an environment of life in which we live mm. as opposed to, and utility goes out the door. It doesn't matter what it costs. What mm. matters is how it feels. Right. So we're now on the other side of that. So what does this mean for uh, your friends and listeners and so forth is we have to be in front of our consumer. Instead of displays that indicate largesse, we speak to things that speak of simplicity and, and accuracy, things with clean lines and uh, no confusion. Because we want to move away from this confused world, but it keeps occurring in our life. Mm -hmm. uh, an appetite almost for chaos, um, you know, whereas uh, during the bull market, it's all bright colors and expansive type designs. The opposite is true. Uh, there will always be people, there will always be a very small percentage of the economic pyramid that have the capital to spend uh, on a select of your mm -hmm. sort of and you are supremely qualified to cater to them because you have Thank a you. very deep talent pool and they would be fortunate to work with you but there are a lot of people that are like anything there's you know the average is made up of people that you know it's, you, uh, you're, you're better than half and worse than the other half you know and so the average designer out there needs to really pivot so mm -hmm. in their language they have to talk about durability this design will probably 
through the entire weekend, or you will be able to take it. It'll still be there when you return from your honeymoon or uh, any of that. So durability is utility. It would also work as an ongoing creation in your home, as an example. That would be durable. That would last and would give you this token thing. During periods of excess, we don't care. We throw it out. Food is scraped off the plates and we have more than we need. Mm -hmm. So I would be looking at durability, uh, speaking to cost. Uh, You want to actually speak to it. Whereas I think in my experience with a lot of designers, uh, I gave a presentation at uh, a college of art uh, a couple of times on the East Coast years ago. And there is a thing where a lot of artists don't want to soil their, the, the cleanliness of their mind and their work by speaking about money. And I think that that's a big mistake because your consumers are thinking about it and they'll be thinking about it more now than they were in the bull market time. Right. So you want to be the one that drives that narrative. One of the concepts that I teach is what I call second degree acknowledgement, which is you take their fears, you bring them into your domain of expertise, you add to them, strangely, and you give them back and you give it back to the person. Why, why would we do that? It's a longer conversation than this. We would do this because if I'm going to say, yes, that is an issue, not just that, but this, this, and this, who do you trust to solve those problems? The person that is courageous enough to, to, to visit those demons with you. So if I were in your shoes, I would be worried about cost. I would be worried about maintenance, all of these things. What's going to happen with temperature change in this room because we can't afford any loss or whatever it is. Mm. Clearly, I have no idea what I'm speaking about. But, <laughs> but you know, you, you, you get a sense of whatever. So you go there and you say, right. this is what I'm worried about. We can, this will also be uh, reusable. So designers would be well served mm-hmm. to make sure that their basic stock is of very broad utility. Let's say the jars, the glasses and stuff you use, can they be repurposed from a funeral to a wedding? That would be a magic trick. Uh, But if you can pull that off, you are going to do the golden rule, which is to minimize expenses in a contracting economy. So personally, I think you need to get in front of the messaging. This is the appetite that is coming. And I'll give one final example is we just need to look at movies. Mm. Uh, Movies during the 1960s ripped, you know, as the market ripped higher, skirts got shorter, free love, the Beatles, <laughs> the Beach Boys, she loves me, yeah, yeah, you know, remember, right. at least we call them boob, tu- boob tubes, you know, right. uh, really skimpy clothes, bright colors, uh, pretty risque stuff, a lot of people shaking their hips, feels good. What movies were we watching? We were listening to the Beatles and it was all about, you know, California surfing and blah, blah, blah. That rolled over into the first signs of the the counterculture movement of the hippies and free love and so forth. Mm -hmm. That then devolved into the 1970s of long skirts, dark colors, different drugs from uppers to downers Mm, that shifted, went from... Uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Mary Poppins, Family Fair to The Exorcist, uh, Poltergeist, uh, Psycho, the most terrifying movies of a generation. Uh, Our music went from The Beatles and The Beach Boys to Jimi Hendrix and The Doors. This is a massive shift that's going on. Now, it's worth noting that music that was like The Doors or, or dark or whatever was still being made in the 60s, just as pop feel-good stuff was still being made in the 70s. What changed was our appetite for what we wanted to consume. The same thing played out through the 1980s and uh, 1990s. You know, we went from 
uh, the, these, this extent, huge expansion, asset prices, a tech bubble, <clears throat> everybody uh, making money super easy and stocks flipping homes, blah, blah, blah. And again, Family Fair, Britney Spears, boy bands, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, manufactured music, nice. short skirts at the Super Bowl and so forth. Uh, Shrek as the the all-time greatest family movie. <laughs> and then we roll over into the recession of 01, 02. What emerges? Fight Club, uh, Blair Witch Project, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Dark, uh, dark, difficult stuff. So these are these are things that need to be factored in, I think, into design. We can get ahead of it. You know, you look, it, it's not just, look at Maplethorpe, for example. Extremely provocative artist. I'm not a fan. Right. It's not the art that he created. It's when it was popular. What does that art, how does that quite literally sit on the stock market as an indicator of social mood, huh. optimism and pessimism? It sits perfectly. Uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, uh, goodness, think about um, uh, what is his name in the 50s and 60s, white hair artist, uh, uh, Marilyn Monroe, the the uh, Campbell's soup can. Oh, this is embarrassing. Oh, uh, uh, Rockwell. Uh, Norman. No, Norman Rockwell, different era. Similar. No, 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 I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Hang on. I know exactly who you're talking about, though. Yes. Okay. This, this is going to drive everybody crazy. <laughs> Me too. Oh, and so. somebody listening out there like, you fools, it's this. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I cannot think of the name, but I know exactly who you're talking about. Uh, Are you Googling it? <laughs> I, I have to because if I were listening to it, uh, I, uh, I would be fuming. <laughs> Let's see. We are talking about Andy Warhol. That's it. That's it. Yes. Sorry. Yes. So, uh, yeah, Andy Warhol, a perfect example. I mean, talk about just tchotchke type art, but same thing. Bright colors. Everyone mm -hmm. feels good, you know. Um, changes very much. So it's not the art that they're making because that type of art is always being made. Now, granted, they have their own individual styles and nuances. I don't mean to to diminish the artist's individual work. Uh, but the point is all types of work is being created at all times. It's what do we have an appetite for and when. Mm -hmm. um, I think that designers and artists have a unique opportunity to capitalize on that. That's, that's a really amazing insight honestly i i never i never thought about it that way i never correlated economic you know changes right to to those emotional changes i mean of course the emotional changes automatically happen as things that get harder for people the living gets harder right but yeah. i never thought about it from perspective of the music even the drugs that you talk i mean it, it's it, it's crazy how it all sort of works together i have a lot of homework to do i'm like so intrigued and excited about this and i actually want to go and do some research because this is very exciting interesting so with that being in mind um and like i said i've never even thought about that or heard anybody talk about it like that um or kind of correlate those things together um in a way that you just did so we we are coming from you know this music of like I don't know, the Despacito, this party or whatever. Yes. That's the first thing that just comes to my mind. Yeah. Right? This this party atmosphere. 
Yes, and it's very fleshy. There's a lot of flesh and there's there's mixed cultures. We we become extremely, you know, uh, gender boundaries come down, uh, ethnic and religious boundaries come down. Um, And you just have to watch that that video to to see it in action. Right. so I'm just curious to see sort of what what is the next round of things that, that that's coming down the pike that's gonna gonna look like. That's very intriguing right now. I mean, yes, you can make the prediction, but it's like I can't even begin <laughs> to like, yeah, that's that's. I think yes, it's fashion too, as you're talking about it. I mean, I can like think of the fashion, you know, kind of going back and leading up to it. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. That's just, so you look back to the flapper girls, or you look back to. Uh, uh, you know, burlesque, and when were these things? And they will fit exactly on a chart of the stock market as a barometer of social mood. Right. Um, we look, we look at uh, you know the 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 Roaring Twenties right. versus right. the Dark Nineteen Thirties. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we look at again to look at movies. The only horror movie to have ever won Best Picture was in nineteen ninety one. Silence of the Lambs. Okay. In, in the recession of our first invasion uh, into Iraq, mm-hmm. uh, go back to the 1960s, the miniskirt between 1955-1960 and the beginning of the downturn 1968 through 1974, mm-hmm. the U.S. economy imploded. We threw out Nixon, who in the boom times had been had won a re-election by a landslide. Mm. Now, we, Richard Nixon was a crook from when he was back in California. <laughs> I mean, he he was running for his first election. He was called Tricky Dick back then. So we always <laughs> knew that, that he was a crook. But when things were going great, we didn't really care. Like, no right. problem. You know, let's bring him back in. He gets reelected. The market implodes. We end up in the worst recession since the Great Depression, a right. double dip uh, collapse in equities in the economy, 72, 74. And the miniskirt, Nixon is out. The miniskirt turns into the maxi, long, down to your ankles, brown colors, dark, covering up, a woman covering herself up, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, uh, yeah. we, we're creatures of habit. Yes, and everything goes in cycles. So, it does. So, and so yes. becomes the antihero. Yeah. Uh, the, the best examples in our living experience is the Batman movies. You look at the Batman movies in the 1990s, and he mm-hmm. was a good guy, and he was fighting the Joker and so forth. You fast forward to 2008, 2009, and the Batman, the, this good guy, Batman, who in the 60s was going pow, bam, and fighting bad people in bad you know, <laughs> fashion. Fast forward to the ni- uh, 2008, 2009, worst collapse since the Great Depression. Mm. And we have the, Batman becomes the Dark Knight. He's broody. He's known to do evil things. He mm. could go either way. Uh, and this is it. We go from hero to anti-hero. And so those that are trying to get their message out there will go from, look at me, I'm super wealthy and successful, I'm crouching next to a Lamborghini, to... I've I've been screwed over and I'm bootstrapping and I've come from nothing and I was in jail. Now I'm at Baba. Those are the people we love. Those that can put ourselves in their narrative. Huh. Put yourself in my story is what we always want to hear. Right. Interesting. I guess that, that totally makes sense. You know, you're going through this emotional hardship essentially and if somebody's talking to you all happy and happy and everything else, you're just, the first thing comes comes to my mind when that happens if i'm not in the mood and somebody's just way in the mood it's like please just turn it down a notch just just a notch like you know yes. it's just that immediate that that kind of 
reaction that happens, right? And um, yeah, and there's definitely the opposite of the chemistry, right? It's this yes. explosion that just sort of almost happens internally in every aspect of our lives, I think. But right. it, it totally makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that was that was really good, Alistair. I'm like, I really want to go back and read about all of this now. This is fantastic. Um, and thank you. I um, I want to pivot into, um, so I was listening to your podcast, um, The Third Rail Entrepreneur, which is amazing, by the way. Um, some of them I have to go back and listen again because I'm like, okay, I don't know if I understood it completely. You know, it's, it's, it's just so, some of the thoughts are so deep and complex that it makes you think, right? And it's a very thought-provoking podcast. I really enjoy it, actually. Thank you. Um, and well, well done, actually, in forecasting the theme of the emotional being. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, if it's hard to understand, that's my fault, and it's something I need to get better at because, you know, it's not the it's not the teacher that decides if they're a good teacher; it's the student. No, um, it's great. It's really yeah, good. I've, I've clearly got some work to do, but thank you. No, 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 no. This was this was actually a compliment. What I'm saying is, like, I feel like you forecasted the common way of thinking kind of going into it, right? I mean, there are this podcast. Um, the first person that comes to mind is, um, what's his name? Um, football player, Lewis Howe. Okay. It's always happy, happy, and it's just, it's all feel good. There yeah. are days that I need to listen to Lewis Howe. I need that, like, you know, I'm like, all right, we're all going to be okay. You know, let's perfect. move on. Right? That's a perfect example of what you're doing. That's exactly it, Anahit. Thank you. Because what you're saying is I have a feeling and I want to find something that matches it. Right. And that, and that's exactly it. But I'm saying like right now, like I'm drawn to, like I can't listen to, I, 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 I've sort of, it's not calling right mm -hmm. now. Like I'm listening to your podcast where it is so thought provoking. I'm like, whoa, that's that's interesting. That's, that's <laughs> intriguing. And in a different way, you know, and I'm like, okay, it, it's very rich. And I, I, I love it. So Thank please don't change much. anything about it. <laughs> no, oh, this was not a criticism. It was a compliment. Um, but there was what, there was an episode and I don't remember which episode it was because when I started listening, I just kind of listened to one after another. Um, there was one specifically just recently that you did that you're sort of talking about um, the clash of um, economy versus healthcare, the emotional, you know, all sort of the four components. Like, and I want to refer people back to your podcast to listen to that because I thought it was a brilliant episode um, and really insightful for the time we're in right now, you know, especially going through this COVID-19 um, situation, right? But if you can kind of like just to summarize that a little bit, right? Just kind of, I mean, I, I thought that was fantastic, your, your uh -huh. insight on that. You know. Thank you. It's uh, it's very easy for us, especially in an era where we just go from news consumption to news consumption uh, <laughs> with short breaks to eat food almost. It's we're just voraciously hungry for information. Mm -hmm. But very but and the problem is that it's largely opinion masquerading as news mm -hmm. or it's information masquerading as insight. And it's just, it, it's, this is of no portable utility. I, I mm -hmm. actively avoid the media because I have not yet for myself mm -hmm. found any real actionable value for my life or my family, my loved ones. So I, I try to avoid it. But one of the recurrent themes that's showing up lately is this idea that 
we are being forced to stay home, and this is draconian, this is anti-American, uh, and it, we've made what is a collective health issue about my individual rights. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have several friends that are jumping up and down, angry as all get up about this, and they, they legitimately feel like their rights are being infringed upon. Mm-hmm. And I can understand how they feel that way. Likewise, you've got doctors jumping up and down and saying, you know, basically, you people don't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what this really is, if we take a step back, at least in my assessment, is it's a collision of four completely different forces that are coming together. One is the medical. The medical is essentially saying, when, as we've got to look at these different silos, and they are medical, economic, or economic uh political and social, Mm -hmm. these different columns that support the the idea that is the United States and any nation. Mm -hmm. The economic, and they each have completely different incentives, uh, risk tolerances, and measures of progress. The economic column says progress means expansion, growth, and more of everything for everybody. That's what our economic system is centered on. Mm. It's deeply rooted on collective, ongoing, daily interaction, whether it's at the marketplace or on the stock exchange or trading euros for U.S. dollars. It requires constant collaborative interaction between its participants. This same system is willing to accept significant risk if the upside is large enough. So in economics, in our business, in our personal portfolios, whatever it is, we agree to take a certain amount of risk if if it can be compensated for suitably. So I will risk $10 if I can gain 100 okay? If I'm wrong, I lose $10. Very different from the next silo, which is medical. Medicals, uh, the incentives for medical is health, beyond just the absence of disease. It's vitality, it's energy, mm-hmm. and so forth. It's, it's holistic well-being. And the field of medicine, that is its goal. But that's an immeasurable one. How do we measure vitality in an, in, uh, an organism or an ecosystem? Mm-hmm. We can't. We can only measure it by its absence. And we measure it by disease, by injury, by conflict and harm. Economics, we measure it. You know whether you are worth more money today or less. It's measurable. Medicine is not. It is measured by, it is, by its failure. Uh, likewise, medicine's ideal, whereas in economics we're always willing to pay a price, in medicine, no price is, is okay. Herd, the herd must be protected. If we lose one child, it's too many. Mm-hmm. And we because we just look at the FDA's protocol for, say, uh, bringing on a new drug. Iteration after iteration after iteration, every one of those is moving toward this Shangri-La goal of zero possible risk. Mm-hmm. And finally, we get to a point where we say, we don't like it, but we're willing to go ahead with this uh, side effect or what have you. By the way, there are no side effects. There are just effects, and there are effects that we don't like. That's, you know, effects okay. we, and effects we don't. Um, and so that is medicine. And medicine is, in this case, without a vaccine, without a treatment, without any way of alleviating the harm that this disease or this virus is causing. Mm-hmm. They're left with no tools, and so they turn to the last most primitive tool they have in their drawer, which is social distancing. Social distancing is antithetical to economic interplay Mm -hmm. interaction. So now we're saying the superimposition of the medical upon the economic or the economic upon the medical. 
Then the third silo is political. Political is trying to satisfy the demands of both the economic marketplace and people's financial well-being with the idea that we have to keep as many people alive as we possibly mm. can. The body politic gets all of the risks and all of the uh, and a modest amount of the benefits of an economic expansion. The easiest way to predict that someone's going to be re-elected is look at where stocks began when they were uh, hired for the job and where the election is. In bull markets, everybody gets re-elected. Reagan, uh, Clinton, um, and those were those were elections I predicted. I predicted Obama's win. I predicted Trump's win, et cetera, et cetera. Using mm. the same format, so they get they get the credit for a booming economy, which is preposterous, right. and they get <laughs> the discredit, which is also preposterous, and then they get the credit or discredit for the number of lives lost. Mm. This is Trump is in serious trouble, uh, and then finally there's the social. We are human animals. We are uh, we are a herding animal, and while it is understandable that you want to keep me in this clean bubble without any sort of risks to my immune system. I inherently become weaker without the challenge of a hormetic uh, challenge, which is a small dose of external poison to which my body responds with antibodies. This is where we build our immunity, mm -hmm. uh, by eating dirt when we're a kid and so forth. This is why in the United States, there's a rash of children that are allergic to all sorts of things. These right. are the same children whose parents have cleaned them everywhere they've gone and right. have not had animals in their home. There's a direct correlation between people who grow up with dogs and cats and the robustness or lack of in their immune system. Uh, and so that's going on. And then finally, what is good for individuals is to keep them you know, clean and free of disease. But what kills them is separating them from each other. Mm -hmm. And we know this because we do this to the worst among us. You can take a, a maximum security prison of terrible people. And what is the final ultimate punishment? It is isolation. We put them in a separate cell on their own. Mm -hmm. We know this to be the most harmful, brutal thing we can do to someone short of killing them. Yeah. So, so there are risks and rewards inside each of these silos. And when we look at people saying, it's my rights, or I need to make a living, or these are all true. Mm -hmm. And threading the needle where all four of these silos are satisfied is a Herculean task. Yeah, that was... That was... Um thought provoking see well, like it makes much, me much longer than it should have been sorry about no, that no 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 it this 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 is great and it it only just makes you think and pause and also understand right you know rather than being all emotionally up in arms about one side or the other you know it, it is it it definitely helps you see the other side in the way and understand and be a little more compassionate you know, perhaps. Yes, yes, exactly. We can see how the doctors right. feel, how the economists feel, and yeah. how politicians are trying to keep everyone happy because that's what keeps them employed, you know, and how society is simultaneously trying to protect their children and protect their emotional well-being. This, this is tough. Yeah. Well, Alistair, I feel like I can ask you a thousand questions and I, I get smarter with, like, every time you talk, you know, <laughs> that's how I feel at least, you know. I mean, every time you have a talk at the masterminds that, you know, at our mastermind meetings, I'm, like, literally, like, just, just like, soaking it all in and, you know, profusely making notes. And, um, yeah, so this was absolutely fantastic. Um, I've taken 
a lot of your time and I truly appreciate it. And, you know, I hear that time and attention is all we have, right? That's all we have. So I really thank you for that. Oh, it's my it's my privilege. I always enjoy our conversations, and it's a pleasure to spend time with you as always, Anahit. Thank you for the invitation. Well, what did I tell you, you guys? How was that? And wasn't it great? If you enjoyed Alistair as much as I did, you will for sure enjoy his podcast called Third Railed Entrepreneur. It is a breath of fresh air, a different outlook on business ownership, financial markets. It's rather poetic, actually, if I must say. It's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to right now. And I would highly recommend you guys to jump in and check it out. And I want to thank all our sponsors, 411 Floral and Floral Success Institute, for helping us along in our journey. Well, it's a wrap. Thank you, everyone, for listening, for tuning in to Viva La Floral Live podcast. We'll see you next week.